being a banker for 21 years almost. That's okay. It's, it's going to fuel you. Um, it's still, I think, fueling me to this day. Somebody does a little bit more, should be waiting a long time. So people are just going to have to roll up their sleeves. Try to make sense of it because there's so much information coming in and you don't know what's, what's relevant and what's not. The corporate world, uh, for four years as a CEO, I'm not interested in having this small probability of losing a whole lot of money. You need to be surrounded by other smart people. Got me through the door because it's a pretty small group. And it's fine, 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 Hello everyone, this is your host, Maura Maya. Welcome to another episode of the Finance Podcast, where I explore the professional journey of individuals who have successfully built careers in the financial industry. My guest this week is Elliot Freestone. Elliot Freestone is a managing director at Mobilis and Company, where he specializes in M&A advisory. Mr. Freestone has over 15 years of investment banking experience, executing public and private buy-side, sell-side, and special committee assignments across a broad range of industries. His expertise has led him to advise on numerous high-profile strategic M&A transactions with an emphasis on the hospitality and leisure sectors. Prior to joining Molis and Company, Mr. Friesen worked in the M&A group at Centerview Partners and he began his career in investment banking with Scotia Capital in Toronto, Canada. Mr. Friesen holds a Bachelor of Arts in Honours Business Administration from the Richard Ivey School of Business at the University of Western Ontario and a Master's of Business Administration from Columbia Business School. So please enjoy my conversation with Elliot Friesen. Hi, Elliot. Thank you for being on the platform here with us today. It is an absolute pleasure to have you. Hi, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So I want to get right into it. And before we get into understanding your day-to-day role as Managing Director at Molis, I would like to discuss your career path. How's, how does it all start? Sure. Um, well, I went to University of Western Ontario, uh, the Ivy Business School. Uh, I didn't start straight out of college and banking, um, but after about sort of two years, you know, continuing to, to work with my contacts at, at Western, at Ivy, I, uh, I landed at a small boutique investment bank in Toronto called Research Capital. Uh, I was there for about a year and then moved over to Scotia, um, which was, you know, in 2005, which was right at the, the height of the Canadian income trust market, which was a pretty unique time in uh, the Canadian capital markets until, you know, the government shut it down when Bell thought they wanted to do an income trust. Um, so it was sort of a great, it was a great time to start a career and, and there's just a ton of deal activity. Um, at Scotia, there were, you know, a number of Columbia alumni. So, uh, you know, meeting them, I decided to go to Columbia Business School, do my MBA, move down to New York in 2007, where I then uh, was in business school during the Great financial crisis, which was, which was also um, pretty interesting. Um, you know, just seeing it, having the perspective of professors that were working in Wall Street, came from the Fed, uh, very much in the flow of information. Teaching us at the time was was a pretty unique experience. Um, graduated in two thousand nine. Really, the depths of the recession, almost zero recruiting that year. Exact opposite of what it is now. Um, started at RBC you know, largely because of Canadian connections and I knew investment banking, I knew RBC. So started there, moved to um, Centerview sort of after about 18 months um, where I was focused on healthcare and really large cap product. 
um, which was a great experience as well, just learning the, you know, the public company product and execution. But, you know, I knew I didn't want to be healthcare, got the opportunity to come to Molis. It's been really an ideal fit for myself. I, I sit in the M&A group. Uh, I spend a lot of my time in hospitality and leisure. When I came, I said, I want to cover ski companies. They're like, I don't know if that's a business, but, you know, good luck. Um, and since then, we've sold, done the two largest ski deals. We sold Intrawest to KSL and we sold Peak Resorts to Vail. And you can sort of see my wall. Obviously, I practice what I preach. Um, we did a huge golf deal last year. Um, very, very active in the hospitality market, but I'm still able to to do the, you know, the public company execution through the M&A group. So it's just been an ideal fit for me. And that is the seat I sit in today. That is a fantastic story, but I do want to dive deeper into something you've mentioned because you mentioned graduating right in the mid, the midst of the great financial crisis. So I'm curious, you know, why did you decide to go into finance, especially at that period in time and why banking? Well, look, uh, you know, part of the decision was because I'd done it before and I felt I could be successful in it. I was able to hit the ground running. Um, you know, and versus trying another avenue of, of finance, like private equity or trading, which were hit even harder, right? In, uh, you know, there was a place I was at in the, that summer, my summer internship, that was trying to raise a fund. They couldn't raise a fund, so there was no, there was no job to come back to. Um, really, all of the, you know, because liquidity dried up so much, all of the trading jobs really evaporated. So, you know, I said, this is I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed the work. I find it very intellectually stimulating. Uh, we can talk about a little bit more after, but you know, at every level of the, the career progression in banking sort of changes and there's new challenges. So you, you're really always pushing yourself. So it was a job I enjoyed doing. It was a natural fit for myself. Uh, and I thought that I could you know, be successful there. And I, I want to change avenues a little bit and ask you about specifically investment banking. What are some of the biggest challenges, challenges, pardon, that you've encountered while working in this industry? Um, yeah, look, I think the biggest challenge is that it is different at every level, right? And what makes a successful analyst is not necessarily um, what will make a successful MD, right? So, you know, it starts off, you need to be very, very focused on technicals, your analytical ability, uh, really good attention to detail. Um, and what the job evolves into, you know, from there as a VP is sort of focused on project management. So now you're leading a team and, and leading a transaction to ultimately when you make MD, it's really about providing advice, right? And it's it's not the blocking and tackling anymore. It's sort of that 10% differentiated advice that will get a deal from close to actually complete. And so to, to kind of continue with that question, we talked about how you've built a career both in banking, having worked both at the junior level and now at the senior level. What are some of the most important decisions you've made throughout your career? I think the most important decision easily was the decision to come to Molis, right? And the reason why is you need to find the right fit for you personally in your career. And I have absolutely found that at Molis. It, again, like I said, it, it allows me to focus on public company M&A, which I love sort of, I would say, uh, unique esoteric projects, uh, one-offs, but also, you know, the day-to-day the -day of the leisure and hospitality group where I spend probably 
75% of my time, which is an industry that, that fascinates me and that I'm, that I know a lot about. So what I would tell young people is, you know, the most important thing, if you're in undergrad, you, you got to get that summer internship, right? That's number one. And then number two is you got to turn that summer internship into a full-time offer. It's just much more difficult to, to get onto Wall Street if you don't have that full-time full -time offer. Once you have it, you know, hopefully you're in the exact right spot for yourself for the long term. But if you're not, you know, find out what is the best fit for you and find out what is your path, right? What do you excel at? What's going to make you different? That's going to allow you to have a sustained long-term successful career in investment banking uh, and go after that. Fantastic. And now I did rip up the script here a little bit, and I want to go back to one of the questions I wanted to ask you. What are some of the most common misconceptions about investment banking, and how do you explain those misconceptions to individuals? Um, misconceptions. Well, I mean, look, the, 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 the single biggest one is that we invest, right? That's, that's not what we do. That's not investment banking. So hopefully somebody gets over... Uh, you know, over, over that question before they are able to, you know, move forward. Um, you know, look, I think people think that it's really a sweatshop. It's a grind all the time. Obviously it's a lot of work, but it's a very rewarding job. I would say uh, it's an intellectually stimulating job and there's not a lot of jerks in it in general, certainly where I am. And so I think that it's sort of getting over those sort of preconceived notions that they might have of, you know, seeing the movie Wall Street of like, okay, this is what Wall Street is like. And the only way to do that, I think, is to just meet people, you know, and show your personality, show that you're a fun group. That's why we spent, that's why we invest so much into the recruiting process and all this is to just demonstrate that, hey, this is a place where you know, you can have a really good time. You're going to make lifelong friends um, and where you would want to have a career. You've clearly created quite the career in banking. So what do you believe is the most important skill or attribute to succeed in investment banking? Yeah, again, I think I think it does change over time. Um, and at the senior level, I would say certainly in an M&A role, which is and to be execution advice, you need to be, uh, someone once described it to me as having fluidity in the room, right? You, you need to be able to respond in real time to challenges, changes, like you throwing me questions that weren't on the question bank, right? And, and um, very quickly react and, and provide the right advice in those situations. So that is, it's a skill that, uh, maybe some people have it innately. I think for someone like me, it was more about just getting a lot of experience, right? Reps, you know, the more situations you see, the more ways you'll learn, okay, how do I respond if, if that question is thrown my way? Fantastic. So now we'll move to another segment entirely and we'll be moving to the market questions to look a little bit about, look at the world right now, today at this moment. So in your uh, professional opinion, Will M&A continue to see the same unprecedented levels of activity it experienced during the last two years? Or do you believe that the headwinds such as the new market environment of a rising interest, interest rates pardon will result in lower activity? So 
I, I would say a couple things. So I'm looking at some data right now. So if I look the other screen, that way it's going to look at my other screen. Um, it's really not the last two years, right? 2020 was really kind of on par with the last couple of years. 2021, you know, US M&A activity was 3.5 trillion, right? It's about 2 trillion the year before. So a 90% increase year over year. And that was, 2021 was the largest year for M&A in the history of the world, right? So that's a unique benchmark. So are we going to uh, eclipse that this year? I don't know. What I would say is, I, I think that M&A will remain elevated for a couple of reasons. Um, one, you know, financial sponsors, right? This isn't a cottage industry anymore. There are, there's about $3.5 trillion of financial sponsor dry powder out there. And that number has almost never gone down, right? So since if you go back and you look at the last 20 years, it has consistently been increasing. So it used to be that most, if you go back to the 80s or the 70s, there was no such thing as financial sponsors, right? It was only strategic MA, very few deals. In the 80s, you know, the Raider, you know, the, the year of the corporate Raiders is when it was introduced, but it was still kind of a novelty. At this point now, there are thousands of private equity funds, you know, across the world, and their entire business model is to buy and sell companies. And that, that did not exist before. So, and these companies need to put out money every single year. They can't go to their LPs and say, hey, you know, 2021 was good, 2022, it didn't do any deals. That doesn't work, right? So, so they have to be putting capital to work in a way. So there is now, you know, th that's why I think it'll become much less cyclical M&A than it has been in the past. They need to put money to work in all markets. The other part that's kind of supercharging it, they, they've become uh, a little bit of a four-letter word in the last nine months are SPACs, right? A, a SPAC is effectively a private equity fund on steroids because they need to put money to work really quickly or they're going to actually have to give that capital back to their investors. So there is a lot more money chasing deals now than there ever has been before. So, um, you know, interest rates are going up. They're going up a little bit, but let's also keep in mind that they are at historical lows near 0%. So they have a long way to go before they're really going to begin to impact, um, you know, in, impact returns in a meaningful way. And that just means that, you know, pricing will adjust accordingly, right? If, if rates go up, you know, valuations will go down, but there will still be, there will still be that need for, to do deals and there will still be, you know, need for bankers to, you know, advise on them. Great insight. So you mentioned putting capital to work. Where do you see the M&A opportunity in the following year in any particular industry? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think tech will continue to stay very hot. Tech. Tech and financial institutions sort of led in the last couple of years. Um, I think those will remain active industries because it's sort of just you know the the bleeding edge of of what's happening in uh, uh, in the market. You know, but I think there's a lot of other places that will become more attractive as a result of rising rates, right? Like I would expect power and utilities emanate pick up. Those, those are going to become more attractive assets in, in um, you know, a rising rate environment. And I would also say, you know, the last couple of years, what we've seen, I'll take my industry that I work in a lot, hospitality. There's been virtually uh, no distress. Why? Because banks have been very, very forgiving for the last two years uh, with, their, with their clients. 
that is beginning to change, right? And we're, we're beginning to see some distress. So you might even get uh, the return of um, some restructuring business this year that we had, that we all expected in early 2020, didn't always materialize. I think this could be the year as banks just kind of run out of patience where we, we see that market pick up as well. Great insight. So I do want to move a segment again, now moving towards our guidance questions and we'll no longer be focusing on markets. What is the best advice you can give to a university student trying to break into investment banking? Sure. So a couple of things. One, prepare, right? So how can you prepare yourself? Well, there's obviously your coursework, right? But there's a lot that you can do beyond that. You know, you can you can read up about this industry. You can understand sort of what the job, job entails. And how can you prepare yourself for that? How do you how do you preemptively get your technical skills good, right? I, you could just, as an example, say, hey, I like this company. I'm going to try to model out this company. Like, let me just see if I can do this and start and sell A1 and kind of work through it, right? So, you know, he, here's an unacceptable answer to me on day one of job is, oh, I've never done this before. I've never used Excel, right? It, the onus is on you to prepare yourself for that job and to teach yourself those tools if you're not getting it uh, through your form, formal curriculum. There's also, you know, tools like, um, you know, teach the street, right? Like you could, you could sign up for a seminar there that'll teach you how to do those things. So that, that's point one. Point two, I would say is, so that's for when you actually get the job, right? Be prepared for when you get the job. Point two is how do you get ready to differentiate yourself in interviews? Um, and I think that comes down to a couple of things. One, technicals to me are, it's a check the box type of question, right? You know what the questions are gonna be. You can, you can buy a book online that'll tell you exactly what they are. So there's really no excuse for getting those wrong. Um, Two is, is your personality. You got to show that you, you are the type of person that is, is driven, is motivated, can handle pressure, um, can be fluid in the room. So that's really what's going to drive your success in the interview. But how do you actually get the interview? How do you differentiate yourself from your peers other than just, you know, academically excelling? Well, like I said, you can take those courses like, a, a, you know, teach the street or whatnot. But it's also all your extracurriculars, right? And I, I would say, keep in mind that everybody you're interviewing with has been through university and you can't really BS them on your resume, right? You can't put 30 clubs and say, I do 30 clubs because it's not possible to do 30 clubs, right? What is much more effective is focus on a couple of core activities that are important to you and take real leadership roles in them, you know, such as what you're doing with, with this podcast, right? That is a different, is a differentiating factor. Um, you know, I take a, a good example at, at Western, right? There's a Western investment club. Anyone that's been to Western and is in finance was in Western investment club. So when someone says that like, I'm a portfolio manager at the Western investment club, I know that they give that title out to, you know, roughly 50 people. So, okay, what have you done beyond that? You know, that's sort of a, uh, the, the first level. Now I want to see the next level of, of leadership in that club. Fantastic advice. So now let's say the individual has gotten the interview, they're preparing for their summer. What is the best advice you can give to either new recruits or upcoming interns as they prepare to either start full-time or start their summer in IB? And I do want to emphasize having the summer opportunity in IB and making sure you get that return offer. Yeah. So I'll tell you what I tell every 
uh, potential candidate I'm, I'm meeting with, which is take notes, take lots and lots of notes, carry a notepad with you everywhere you go. Assume that everything you're hearing from associate or analyst up to MD is advice for you, right? No one is wasting their breath to just tell you this stuff. They're telling it to you for a reason. So write it down. Um, and do not repeat your mistakes, right? Because they're going to tell you how to do something right. Everyone expects you to get things wrong the first time. <coughs> That's quite all right. Getting things wrong two, three times and having me told the same advice, that is not uh, a, a winning strategy. That's number one. Number two, I would say, assume that every interaction that you have inside your employer and at the outside, if you're meeting with clients, matters, right? So treat the analyst with the same respect that you treat the CEO um, because the analyst's voice matters and sometimes the analyst's voice actually probably matters more. Um, that's point number, number two. And then the third point I would say is just, you know, be ready to really commit yourself, right? You wanna be the first person, it's always a discretion, first person and last person. You wanna be that person, right? If you're done your work, okay, well, what else could I help my associate with? You know, like really make yourself a critical part of the team, helpful. So everyone at the end of the year, is like, wow, that person, like I want that person on my team. And then that'll be your best, your best path to getting a full-time offer. Fantastic. So changing things a little bit differently. What is one of the one piece of knowledge that you now know that had you known in your early 20s or 30s would have been beneficial in your career trajectory? Uh, well, look, I'll tell you this, you know, I probably fall into the camp of, you know, when I got to Western, I didn't know what investment banking was, right? So some of the advice I'm giving you, of, you know, prepare, read up on all this stuff. I, I didn't have that. I came from, uh, I, was, I actually grew up in Quebec, right? So I went to CEGEP and Pure Applied Sciences. And then for my second year in university, um, I was at First One Sioux Castle, which is owned by Queens over in England, studying history and art history. So I had a very balanced background, but you know, none of the formal you know, finance education or understanding of the process. So um, you know, if, I could, if I could go back, I would have spent more time educating myself in advance on you know, what the opportunities were, maybe maybe had a little less fun. <laughs> so uh, I've, we're going to head off to closing remarks, but before we do, are there any resources, perhaps books to which you would direct someone because it had some sort of impact on you? So what I would say is um, I think anyone coming into this industry should truly sort of understand the history of it. And I think there are a lot of books in that regard that can educate you. I would focus on two main eras, right? There's a Ton written about the 1980s in finance. You know, the one that, that comes out is that everyone talks about is like Barbarians at the Gate. But, you know, anything that was related to Michael Milken and the rise of the high yield bond market and corporators like uh, Den of Thieves, uh, Liars Poker, I, I would read all of those. That, that's number one. Um, they all have these sort of negative names, but it was just a really, really fascinating time. It's the birth of of you know modern finance right and that gives you a great background i would say also you should read everything about the great financial crisis like too big to fail by uh by sorkin right so you understand what caused that issue 10 years ago um which is sort of set the stage for everything that, that's followed so you know i think if you're 
if you want to get into this, it's important to know kind of the, 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 the history of, of this industry over the last couple of years. Okay. Fantastic. So now we're at closing remarks. Is there anything else you would like to suggest or mention as we wrap up any final advice for our audience? I, I think I've given uh, all of the advice that I, that I normally would give a, a candidate. Um, you know, it's, I would say this, this is a, a fascinating industry. It's an exciting industry. It's fun. It, you work hard. There's no doubt about it. You're going to work really, really hard. Um, but there's very few careers that allow you to challenge yourself every single day. I'm challenged every single day. I'm learning new things every day that where you're constantly working with really, really smart people that are pushing you both internally and on the client side that allow you to, you know, be in the boardroom at a very, very young age. Um, and frankly, that allow you to craft a career for yourself that is quite personalized and lets you do what you want to do, right? So I, I think it's a wonderful place to start um, a career as an analyst. You're just going to, you'll learn more in those two years of being an analyst than I think almost anything else will teach you. And it's a great place to build a career over the long term. So. Fantastic. Well, this has been a great conversation. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, best of luck to you and to all of your, your listeners. That was my conversation with Elliot Freestone. I really hope you all enjoyed it. Packed with a lot of insight. Truly grateful to have had him on the platform. As you know, this podcast is powered by the McGill Investment Club. Remember to stay safe and stay tuned. There is always more coming up.